The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your uh, Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 10 down to verse number 20. The Word of God says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, excuse me, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all. Love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's ask again for God's blessing and help, shall we? Father, again, we come before you this morning with the word of God open before us. And Father, we pray that you would teach us, you would encourage the hearts of us all. Father, you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. And Father, we pray that you would save sinners and build up the saints. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God has given us his full armor of truth so that in his strength we may have sufficient to endure Satan's schemes against us. So we must clothe ourselves in it to stand firm against the devil's schemes and lies. We saw a few weeks ago how we need to prepare because the devil is a liar and a deceiver and a discourager. Because the devil is unrelenting in using his schemes to attempt to turn us away from following the Lord Jesus. We have a purpose in preparing to endure to stand firm and stand fast in the evil day. We must obey God's commands to be strengthened in the Lord, 
to take up and put on the full armor of God, to endure by clothing ourselves with Christ's truth, and to endure by clothing ourselves in Christ's righteousness. And this morning I want to look at the feet shod in the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. Eighteen months ago I said to you we'd start and we'd study through the book of Ephesians. And it would take one year. Well, I hit a year and we weren't anywhere near through it. And then I realized, someone told me the other day, that there's 51 messages in the book of Ephesians. This is message 51. There are 52 weeks in a year. So on a technicality, if I can finish the last verses next week, we would finish in one year. You can come up and argue that that's not a calendar year. It doesn't really count. It's cheating. And you're right. It would. And don't worry about it because we're not going to finish next week either. So it's going to be longer than a year. I thought I might study the book of Jeremiah next. If this is five chapters in 18 months, that'll be 52 chapters in something much bigger. So, but no, I'm not going to. But you know what? I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. That God has, in studying through this, opened my eyes again and again and again to see the glory of Christ. To see the message of the gospel. And never ceases to amaze me in a few words how much we can see of Christ and how much we can see of the gospel and how much there is of the truth of God that we need to equip ourselves with that we might stand and we might endure. In listening to some of you talk and in sharing with you and praying for you and hearing some of your concerns, it's amazing how much again and again we see the Word of God able to meet and minister to each according to their need. And this morning I want to address one of the needs, I think it's one of the biggest needs, especially among younger people, about the assurance of their salvation. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15, he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now some of your older versions will talk about greaves or like a shin guard, but the actual word is kalige in the Latin, and it means a boot, a heavy leather boot that was fastened to soldiers' feet. And driven through the bottom of that boot, the leather on the bottom would have been three-eighths to half an inch or uh, nine to twelve millimeters for you metric people. And punched up through that leather would be these thick hobnails. And they were covered across the bottom of the boot and it would give the soldiers tremendous grip and footing. And as they would go into battle, they were able to stand firm. Now, if you've watched some of the Viking stories you can see on uh, TV once in a while, you see they do something called a shield wall. And what they do is they go into battle and they'd all come up in a line and they'd line up together and all the different soldiers would put their shields out in front and they would link shield overlapping shield overlapping shield. Well, the Romans did something very similar. They had a big thing called a phalanx of soldiers, a big block of them. And all the ones in the front row would put their shields out first And it was interesting that all of the inexperienced young soldiers would go in the very front row so that if they were killed off first, the more experienced, older and wiser soldiers were at the back to face the enemy after the young guys got killed down. I didn't think that was very fair, but that's okay. But that's how they did it. They'd line up the front row, all their shields linked together, and the guys in the middle of the phalanx would take their shields and they'd lift them up and they'd pull them out over top of the, the body of the soldiers themselves and their mates and the guys in front and the guys behind, and they would create this big block of metal shields. 
And they would march into battle like that. And as they would get closer to the enemy and the arrows began to rain down from above, the shields above would protect. And as they got close to the enemy, if the enemy was dumb enough to try it, they would charge against this solid block of wood and metal shields and men all massed together and try and hit it and knock it. That didn't usually work, obviously. So much weight and momentum, right? They put guys like me in the real middle so they could just a lot of weight to kind of push forward. And they would actually hit the soldiers. And as they would push forward, they would literally drive them forward. And the soldiers would push forward with their hobnailed boots and push the other soldiers back and walk over top of them. And the guys in the middle would just stab away and kill the soldiers as they were being trampled down. Now you imagine for a second that the guy in the front row is wearing a pair of like dress shoes like mine with nice, smooth, slick soles. Well, I discovered a long time ago what that would be like. I was playing rugby and uh, we had practice on the rugby field in the afternoon and my parents uh, didn't want to buy cleats. I don't think they thought I would last very long on the rugby field, so they didn't buy cleats. So I'm out there in the mud, and it was a British Columbia type of day to play rugby. It was pouring rain, right? And I'm out there, and I'm running around, and we get into one of those rocks or malls or whatever you're supposed to call the thing, and we all go down and crash together. And I have big feet, you know, big guy, big feet. It happens. And so this other guy was a little bit small. I mean, he hit me, and he happened to have cleats on. And I'm standing there, and I'm literally with my feet out behind me and he's pushing me down the field and my feet are like perfect skis, like water skis. And I'm just sliding backwards down the field. Absolutely useless, right? Until I sucker punched him and then that was a different story. But anyway, but that's the point here. Paul is saying, listen, on your feet, fasten on the boots that will give you a sure footing to withstand against the enemy. He says there, the gospel of peace supplies us with readiness. Now, what is readiness? What does that mean? And the Greek is hetoimasia, and it means preparation or foundation or base. So you could take Roman, or not Romans, it's Ephesians 6.15, and you could paraphrase it like this. The preparation to resist the devil is supplied by the gospel of peace. Or like this, equally valid. You could say the sure footing... The sure grip that prepares us for the enemy's attack is supplied by the gospel of peace. Now that's kind of a long rendition for that verse, but that's basically what it means. Okay, The gospel of peace supplies us with a sure footing that prevents us from slipping and falling. The gospel of peace gives us a sure footing preparing us to endure so that when we are attacked... If we do not have a sure foundation, we will not stand firm. It's absolutely sure. When we are attacked, if our feet are not fitted with sure footing, a sure grip, we'll slide all over. And just like that little guy who pushed me around the field with no problem whatsoever will be the comical epitome of not enduring and not standing firm. Christian, fasten to your feet the sure footing that the gospel of peace provides you. So the answer or the question then comes up immediately. What does he mean by the gospel of peace, the good news of peace? And how is it that the gospel of peace gives us a sure footing to withstand and endure the enemy's assault? It is the good news that peace has come. 
It's a good news that God has made peace with us. And again, you ask the question, how is it the good news of the gospel of peace gives us a sure footing when the devil attacks us? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to take a long detour. You're going to wander halfway through this message. Has he forgotten completely about Ephesians 6.15? The answer is no, I haven't. We're going to get back there. But I want to take you on a long detour, and we'll come back to Ephesians 6.15 close to the end. One of the reasons so many of us struggle with assurance of our salvation is because we do not grasp what the gospel of peace truly means. The gospel of peace that gives us assurance, that gives us a sure footing against the enemy's attacks is knowing that hostility before peace. There was hostility. It comes from knowing how peace was made, and it comes from knowing the extent of the peace that was made. And that gives us the assurance of God's peace, which provides this little blue note sheet in your bulletin there. You can follow along with that if you like. The assurance is what fastens to our feet to help us endure in the evil day. So let's ask the first question. What is the, hum- the hostility, sorry, before Cain? We must remember that there was hostility. Now, before I dive too far into this, I just want to give credit where credit is due. I got a lot of help over the years in understanding the gospel from men like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. And this one here in particular, has, he gave me a lot of help in this. I don't want you to think that I came up with this on my own. I did get some help from other guys. and I do read other guys fairly regularly. I'm going to give you a few texts to help you understand that God had a purpose in creating all things. The Bible says in Revelation 4, verse 11, The worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created them, and he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because of those creations. Romans eleven thirty six. the Bible says, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, from him. God is the creator of all things. He is the originator and the source of all things. To him. God is the recipient and the object of all that creation. God created all things for himself, for his enjoyment, for his use. To him be the glory. God is to be glorified. In and by all things. So every single thing that was created, from the tiniest little microscopic bug to Canis Majoris, the greatest star in the universe that we can find so far, all of it is designed and put together with the purpose of glorifying God in everything they do. Okay? Isaiah 43, verse 7, the Bible says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and whom I made. God's purposes are not selfish. But in this verse here, it looks like, it sort of sounds like, he's created everything for himself. He's trying to get glory for himself. C.S. Lewis made a comment that sometimes when you read the Psalms, God sounds, and he doesn't, don't mean this disrespectfully, but God can sound like an older person who is hungry for affection and attention. He's always saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, the great difference between God and an older person is God is worthy to be looked at and God is worthy to be glorified. But a person 
may not be. All right? So God desires and created all things for His glory. He also created you and I. He designed us and put us together with the ability to experience highest joy possible. Now you might think, in my life, I don't have a lot of joy. There are a lot of things going on in my life that are robbing me of joy, and it feels like my life is just one long grind. I want you to know, on the authority of Scripture, that God designed you and created you to be able to experience and obtain and have the highest joy even possible, beyond what you can imagine, beyond what you can conceive. The Bible says in Psalm 16, verse 11, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, in a relationship with the living God, having fellowship and communion with God, God designed us for the highest levels of joy. And they're only going to be found in Him and in Him alone. You say, How does this answer the question why God is angry at us? And why was there anger and hostility that caused there to be made peace? Well, that's a great question. Take your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 1. I want to read Romans 1, verses 16 to 23, and answer that question, why God is angry. God designed and created all things for His glory, and this is going to show us why God is angry at us. Romans 1, verses 16 to 23, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous one shall live by faith. And then verse 18, For the wrath or the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images embling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." You see what they did in verse number 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and so on. God is angry, extremely angry, because while he created us to glorify him and experience unrestrained and unrestricted joy in God, we have not glorified him. Instead, We have seen what can be known about God. So we walk out, we see in creation, we see in our own physical bodies, we see all around us all the evidence of God's divine uh, nature and eternal power. But we have not glorified God. We have failed to make His name great. We have not honored God. We have not given thanks to God. We have not recognized Him for all the things that He has done. But far worse than that, 
It's one thing not to do that, but even worse, on a far higher level, he says in verse 23, we have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images of corruptible created things. So we have given up God for something far less. Take your Bibles again, flip over, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 11, 12, and 13. Isaiah, then Jeremiah, chapter 2, 11 to 13. Bible says this, this is God and he is speaking through Jeremiah to the prophet of the nation Israel and he's bringing a great indictment against them. But his indictment against Israel stands against us. Look what it says. He says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are, not, they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Very same idea in Romans 1.23, have changed for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. What's he talking about? The greatest evil that we can ever commit is two things put together. Number one, we forsake God. And number two, we carve out for ourselves water jars that can hold no water. Whenever we desire... Something other than God as the source of our joy, our happiness, or our satisfaction, we are committing an appalling, devastating evil. I don't think we grasp that. Every single time that I desire something more than God, every single time I trade my love and devotion and affection for God where it should be and put it into something else, I have committed an appalling and a devastating evil, and God is greatly angry at it. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then he describes it. They have not been thankful. They have not glorified me. And beyond all that, they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for a created thing. Back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, remember the story, Adam and Eve. There's so much theology you can pick up from Genesis 1 through 3 that's so key to the rest of the Bible. He talks about there, he says that their first human sin, instead of delighting in the almighty, everlasting, living God, the Bible says she saw that the fruit was good. Now you imagine, she takes the fruit and she plucks it off the tree. What happened to that fruit? It just died, Right? It's no longer attached to the tree. It's now starting to that slow, long process of rotting before it literally crumbles to nothing and mush and falls into the ground. She takes that piece of fruit and she's looking at it and she's delighting in it. Instead of delighting in God and His wisdom, she saw the fruit as desirable to make one wise. And she's taken that fruit and she's looking at it. And all of a sudden she's forgotten all about God. She has forsaken God, as he says in Jeremiah 2. And she's now delighting in something else, a created image, a created thing, that piece of fruit. She exchanged the fruit 
for, sorry, exchange God for the fruit, thinking it would make her wise. Again, the greatest evil we can commit is to delight in anything other than God, more than we delight in God himself. And our delighting in something other than God angers God. How angry do you think God gets over that? You know what the Bible says? It's like a husband who discovers his wife has had a one-night stand. That's how angry God gets. There's a spirit of jealousy in God, holy, righteous jealousy. He created us for Himself. He created us to glorify Himself. And we've all abandoned God, picked up something that's created, said, oh, this is what's it. This will give me satisfaction. We've traded God for what cannot profit, Jeremiah says. Romans says we've traded God for a created, corruptible being, a creation. That's why God is so angry with us. That delight in something other than God is itself disobedience against God. The Bible says in Psalm 37 verse 4 that we are commanded to delight ourselves in the Lord. You say, it doesn't sound right. So if I went up to Andrew and said, Andrew, you should just delight in me. I mean, you should just look at me. Andrew would say, problem, arrogant much, prideful much. And he'd be right. Because there's nothing desirable in me that's worth looking at. But the whole lot difference is when God says, look at me and glorify me and honor me and give thanks to me because I am God. That's vastly different. He is the highest being. Uncreated, self-sustaining, invisible, incomprehensible God. And yet we have traded delighting in Him for all kinds of other junk and stuff. That's why God is so angry. That delighting in other things is what causes us to disobey God. Our failure to delight in God above all else is disobedience. And disobedience is rebellion against God. That's why God is angry with us. That's why there needed to be peace made. But we're getting there. God designed us and created us for His glory. He designed us to obtain our greatest conceivable joy by glorifying Him, by glorying in Him. And we exchange it for a rock. Exchange him for a rock or a stick of wood or money or sex or adultery or homosexuality or food or alcohol or drugs or gambling or philosophy. Anything we trade and say, I'll delight in this. This is the center of my life. Instead of God, that offends and insults God. God describes it as a great evil. He calls the heavens and the earth. Those created things that glorify God all the time. He calls them to look on this and say, be appalled, be devastated. Heavens, this people that I have created in my image have traded me for a created thing, for a lump of wood, a stick of rock, whatever it is. God describes it as a great evil. Your sin and my sin is rebellion against God. In Psalm 78, verse 17, the Bible says they sin still more against God, rebelling against Him. That sin and rebellion is lined up as parallel. He also created us to experience... Sorry. They sinned against Him. But we have sinned in Daniel 9, verse 5, and done what's wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from God's commandments and rules. Every time we delight in anything other than God, we sin and rebel against God. 
Every time we disobey God's law, it's rebellion against Him. Every time we disobey our conscience, it's rebellion against God. Every time we disobey our parents, it's rebellion against God. Every time we desire money more than God, it is rebellion. Every time we desire sex or pleasure or anything else, it's rebellion. One of the reasons why we struggle with assurance of our salvation is we don't understand how God thinks about that rebellion. For years, I had the idea that God was like a great big grandfather in the sky. Long white hair, long white beard, long white robes. My grandfather had white hair and, a, and well, not a white beard, but he was kind of a cold, older, kindly gentleman. And if I did something to offend him, he never let it get, get angry at me because I was a little kid. He, he, he thought I didn't know better. And we sometimes relate our ideas of grandfather to God and say, well, that's what God is like. But listen, the Bible says anything but that. The Bible says that God is not mildly annoyed at us because of our sin and our rebellion. God is furiously enraged. Uh, only thing I liken it to is a, a jealous husband who's been cheated on. And sadly, one of my friends many years ago, back in Canada, walked in on his wife and his best friend. And he could not deal with the rage that was in his heart. You say, yeah, but he's a sinful man. Yes, but the parallel is there. All through the Bible and the Old Testament especially, it lines it up describing how God is angry because his people have forsaken him. God is angry because we've traded him for created things. God is furiously angry at us. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 18, the Bible says, The sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. God is angry at us for sin. And if we don't understand that, we'll never understand what it is to have assurance and I'll explain why in a second. Nahum verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 6, the Bible says this, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. But praise God, it doesn't end with God's anger. It doesn't stop there. Secondly, remember that peace has been made. God's anger has been taken away. This is the great news of the gospel. You don't get this. You don't understand the gospel. God did not send Jesus Christ to die on a cross to give you a good life. He didn't send Jesus Christ to die on a cross so you could be healed of all diseases. Yes, we are healed by his stripes, but that's not fundamentally the issue. God did not send Jesus Christ to die on a cross fundamentally so we could be just forgiven of sin. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross to reconcile us to God, to bring and make and forge peace. If we get that, we understand the gospel. God's anger has been taken away. He says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 12 and verse 1, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away. Jesus Christ, truly God, who was made flesh, came into the world. Jesus Christ, truly man who, unlike the rest of mankind, desired his Father's will above all else. 
who desired to please his father above and beyond anything else. The point that he could say, even eating has no delight for me, unlike obeying my father's will and doing his will. Where we have failed and desired everything else except God, Christ came and desired only God and only obedience to him. And Jesus Christ has made propitiation for on our behalf. How many here have a good idea of what propitiation means? Handful of you. It's don't don't feel bad if you don't know what it means. It's one of those great theology words that you read and kind of go, I'm sure it's important and keep reading. <laughs> you don't stop to look what it means. But it's massively important. It's so key to the gospel. If we understand it, everything else starts to fall into place. Jesus in his suffering and death has soothed and appeased God's anger. God righteously vented and released his anger at Christ. Jesus absorbed all of God's anger so that God justly and righteously can say, I'm no longer angry with you. My anger has been turned aside. Jesus propitiated. He satisfied the anger of God. God's righteous anger was force was coming at us. And he stood in the way and he satisfied it and he soothed the anger of God so that God's anger is completely taken away. There's no longer any anger toward us. The full value of Christ's propitiation is applied to us when we trust in Jesus Christ. As great and as furious as the anger of God is, the value of the sacrifice of Christ is so much greater that his death is sufficient to pay the penalty for all the sin of all mankind. But his death is only effective for those who believe. You say, I sure understand that. Let me give you an illustration. I owe $100. And I discovered that somebody in this church has got a billion dollars. And I go to them and I say, I need money to pay off my debts. And they say, well, I got a billion dollars. Here it is. Here's all the money necessary to pay off your debt. And they give it to me. I take it and pay off my debt. It makes sense, right? What happens if the other person discovers that I got a debt of 100 bucks and they got a billion dollars in the bank and they say, come to me and say, hey, we've got money for you here to pay off your debt. And I step back onto my self-righteousness and say, well, no, thank you. If you don't mind, I'll pay my own debts. The money is still there. The value of that money to pay the debt is still fully there. But my refusal to accept that payment makes it that I still owe the money. So when Christ died on the cross, his death was sufficient to pay the death, the penalty for every single person who ever lived from Adam all the way to the very end of creation. His death was enough. But it's only effective for those who claim it and apply it for themselves and say, I will take the value of his death. I'll take the value of his anger appeasing death and I'll make it mine. All the wrath of God poured out on Jesus did not destroy him. He has conquered sin and death. He has endured. He has prevailed because he is God. 
The Bible says that God made peace. In Isaiah 26, verse 12, the Bible says, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. You get that? God made peace for us. We don't make peace with God. He comes and makes it on our behalf. In John 20, verse 19, we're reading it last week or this week, I can't remember. On the evening of the first day of the week, the doors being locked when the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And what's the first thing he said? Peace be unto you. I've made peace. I have conquered. I have prevailed. I have taken the wrath of God and turned it away. I make peace. In Romans 5 verse 1, the Bible says this, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of God is this. There is peace between God and us. We hear the announcement of the gospel of peace. We hear that Jesus has died in our place. We begin to trust Him for salvation. We begin to repent of sin. And we follow that by living a life of obedience. And there is now peace between us. God is no longer angry with us. Why do I sneak obedience in there? Why don't I just say, repent of sin, believe in Jesus, the end. I add it in, followed with a life of obedience. It's so key because obedience goes back to the beginning. And what do we desire now? We desire to please God. We desire to do God's will. We desire Him above all the other junk that we've been desiring before. There's now a desire to have God and be with God and walk with God and know God and love God. And obedience exercises that desire towards God. Instead of trying to find satisfaction, join anything but God. Now I desire God and to please Him more than I desire all that other stuff. Third point is this. Remember the extent of the peace that Jesus secured. After World War I, and I think November 11th, 11 o'clock in the morning, an armistice was signed and came into effect. And all the soldiers were waiting for that moment. They put all their guns down. And no longer was there shooting and no longer was there bombing. And as the, the book title goes, all was quiet on the Western Front. And soldiers came up out of their trenches and walked across the trenches. And now there was no longer war and fighting. But the problem was there was still a lot of anger and still a lot of hatred that existed between them. Men had seen their friends killed and bombed and blown to bits by the enemy soldiers. Even though there was an armistice, the peace really wasn't there. It was just a ceasefire, a stop shooting. If you get the idea that the peace between us and God is like that, you massively miss the extent of the peace that God has made. God is not angry, but now he just stops being angry. That's like halfway there, not even half. Half. It's only halfway because the extent of the peace that has been made by God is beyond just saying, no longer am I angry with you. In Isaiah 12, verse 1 and verse 2, he says, although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. That's the difference, isn't it? All of a sudden, instead of God being furiously enraged, 
God reaches out His arm and wraps His arm around our shoulders and says, I'm here. I'm comforting you. There is so much more. God has reconciled us. God has been brought again to a favorable disposition, as the dictionary puts it. God is now in love with us as His children. You say, in love for us, God sent Jesus. You're absolutely right. He did. In anger... He let Jesus suffer all that we deserved. And now he comes along to reconcile us and comfort us. He wraps his arms around us and says, be comforted. The war is over. Now I welcome you into my family. God says, my anger has been forever removed. Now there is love and kindness and tenderness and so on. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling. He was bringing the world back to himself. Turning the hearts of men and women back to God. Now, some of you are wondering, how, what in the world has this got to do with Ephesians 6.15? And I'm so glad you asked. You should ask that. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15. I'm going to see how it works. Ephesians 6.15 says, as we read earlier, And as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Way back at the beginning of the message, we said this, the gospel of peace supplies us with readiness or a foundation to resist the devil. Okay, we said we could paraphrase it like this. The gospel of peace fastens to our feet, will give us a sure footing, and that prepares us for the enemy's attack, enables us to, with, to endure and withstand. The gospel of peace supplies us with a sure footing that prevents us from slipping and falling like hobnail boots for the soldier and like footy cleats for the footy player. When we're attacked, if our feet are not fitted with a sure footing, we'll slide all over, right? So Paul's command to us in this is to endure in the evil day Christian Fasten to your feet the gospel of peace which provides you with a sure footing. Christian, listen. You have peace with God. Nothing can undo Christ's satisfactory death on your behalf. Nothing. So how does that help me? The devil comes to you and starts to sling all the mud he possibly can at you. Give up the faith. You're not truly saved. You didn't believe right. Oh, you've sinned again. Look at that. And all those attacks come flying at us. The hobnail boots of understanding the gospel of peace will keep us from slipping and falling under that attack. Because we can say, I know for sure that Christ has died for me. Nothing can undo his death. I know for a surety that I have peace with God. Nothing can undo that peace. I know. I'm convinced in my heart that I am reconciled to God. Nothing can undo that reconciliation. Nothing can tear us apart. God has made peace. The devil cannot undo it. And that peace that's fastened to your feet will keep you from sliding backwards. God, listen, this is important. 
God must despise and spit on the death of Christ to take away your peace and your reconciled state with him. You say, can you lose your salvation? No, you cannot. Why? Because Jesus said, it's finished, like Wes said earlier. And the Father said, it's enough. I'm satisfied. It's enough. I've turned away my anger. For God to turn and say, you know what, Poovin, forget you. I've had enough. Get out of my family. I'm going to take all the sin and dump it back on you, and you can bear it by yourself. In order for him to do that, he would have to despise and spit on Christ's death and say, it's not enough. Good enough for everybody but Poovin. And praise God, it's good enough for Poovin too. You see what I'm saying? So when the devil throws all the assaults against us, and remember, his schemes are sneaky. His schemes are subtle. They're not bold. They're not headlined. They're not come with a warning package. He will try everything he can possibly do to get us to stop following Christ, to turn us off the path of walking with Jesus Christ. And when he does that, if we're not having the assurance of our salvation fastened to our feet, we'll be slid all over the place and we'll eventually fall. So Paul says, fasten on the boots of the foundation, the readiness of the gospel of peace, the sure footing of the gospel of peace. When we understand the height of the wrath of God and the greatness of the love of God and the infinite value of the death of Christ, we realize that once it was done, it can never be undone. No matter what the devil will throw at you, he cannot take that away from you. All he can do is try and trip you up. All he can do is try and discourage you with all those wicked thoughts he'll fill your brain with. He'll take you out into the world and point to all the pleasures of this world. And I notice as the world gets further and further down its track of depravity, the pleasures that are available become more gross, more disgusting, and more in entrancing than ever before. And all of a sudden we're looking, we're seeing, man, I can't believe they put that on TV. Oh, I can't believe they put that on a public street. Why? Because the devil is pulling out every stop he possibly can to try and allure us away from following. And here's where understanding the gospel is so key. Because before we desired and delighted in the created thing rather than God. But now having seen the beauty and the glory of who God is and realizing that we're truly saved, we've been called to obedience. And that obedience means saying no to sin and yes to God. Saying no to the created thing and yes to God. And refusing to allow all that created stuff. You think an apple was enticing to Eve? Devil pulled out all stops. Look at what's going on in social media. Look at what's going on in the billboards in the streets of Melbourne and Vancouver or wherever it is you come from. He's doing everything he can to turn us aside. And when our feet are fastened with the gospel of peace, it says, I know for a surety that my salvation is absolutely secure. I cannot be pushed off that mark. So how do we fight it? How do we fight back against the devil's attacks? We know, we know in our hearts, having absorbed the word of God, we know that God cannot be angry with me anymore. We know that Christ's death absorbed all of God's wrath. We know what Paul said in Ephesians 1, that I am accepted in the beloved. He won't kick me out. 
We know that we are adopted. He won't throw me out of his family. He knows that our sin is fully dealt with. We know that. And we endure against his attacks by digging our gospel of peace, booted feet down into Christ, the bedrock of our salvation. And we cry out to God for strength. Listen, don't be like the drowning man who's so busy thrashing around the water, not realizing that the life ring's sitting right beside him, so wallowing in his own despair, he can't reach around and put his hand out and grab onto the life ring and be preserved and saved. God has given you those things. Cry out to God for strength. Cry out was one who needs it every single day. And then when we cry out for strength, we call to mind these great truths of the gospel of peace. And we answer back to the devil's lies with truth. Like we said last week, the only thing that defeats the lies is the truth. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. I cry back at the devil. It's written. I'm in Christ. I'm a new creature. Go away. The devil comes back with his lies again and we write, we, we respond back. It's written. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am in Christ. His death is my death. It was sufficient. Go away. You cannot take it over from me. You cannot take it away from me. The devil comes back with another attack and we respond again. It's written. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since I have been justified by faith, I have peace with God through Jesus Christ my Lord. You can't take it away. It's mine. Listen. You're struggling with that assurance. You're struggling with the enemy's assaults. Every single Monday morning, my wife starts to pray for me as soon as she wakes up. You know why? Because she knows if I preach my heart out all day Sunday, I wake up on Monday morning and the devil comes loaded for bear. And every single assault and negative thought and wicked thought, he starts firing away at me like mad. Because he wants me to make a shipwreck in my faith because that will mess up everything. He wants me to turn aside from following. He wants me to live a hypocrite's life so he can expose me and, then, and collapse and cause all kinds of trouble and, diff- and problems in a church. The devil comes no less at you and he'll fire every kind of dart and arrow he possibly can because he wants to trip you up and make shipwreck of faith and destroy your testimony in front of your friends and your family and your workmates. And so we arm ourselves with the word of God. We arm ourselves with truth around the waist, breastplate of righteousness in place, and our feet shod with the assurance that we have that we are truly saved and we cannot lose that salvation and we stand firm. We endure against his assault. The devil comes and says, you're not going to make it. You can't do it. And we answer back from 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he, not me, he is able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. Brother and sister in Christ, I plead with you, if you're struggling, don't be like the drowning man wallowing and thrashing around the water. There is a life ring right beside you with God's truth all over it. Hang on to it. 
Arm yourself with the truth of the Word of God. Wrap the breastplate around you. Pick up the shield of faith. Pull the helmet down over your head and stand firm with your feet booted with the gospel of God's peace that gives you assurance that you'll never lose your salvation. Jesus said, don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, don't fear the devil. Respect. Realize who he is. Realize you cannot fight him on your own and cry out for God's strength, but stand firm. I said it last week, I'll say it again. Come on, Noble Park. We can do this. Why? Because we're strong enough? No. We can do this because God has given us everything we need to stand firm. But the call in verses 14 and 13 there, Stand therefore having fastened, verse 13, Take up the armor of God. That is for you and I to obey, to pick up that armor and put it on. So if you're standing out there naked and exposed, I plead with you, pick up the armor of God, put it on. Take the Word of God, the truth that God has given us. Read it, memorize it, meditate it, but most of all, apply it to yourself. Those verses were written for you. They were written to give you strength to stand in an evil day. Put them on. Don't stand there and say, I can't help it. I'm getting shot down by the devil and the armor's lying in a pile at your feet. He's given you the strength to reach down and pick it up and start strapping it on. And you know what else? I'm going to go back to something else. I know our time's going fast. Sorry. The phalanx of the Roman soldiers in battle together is a really key thing the Lord just gave me two seconds ago. We need each other. We pick up that shield. We put on the helmet. We have the sword. We have all those other bits and pieces on us. But we come alongside one another and we link our arms together. And the shield, my shield overlaps Con's shield. And Con's shield overlaps uh, Hannah's shield and so on. And we all form that wall together. And reaching up above behind us is Wes with his shield, putting it out over top. And as a body of Christ, we're fastening ourselves together because God designed us to be a body together. And yes, my shield stands in front of me and his shield stands in front of him and Hannah's in front of hers and Wes is over top of him and they're all together, but we need each other so that when we struggle and I begin to slip, Con hooks his arm into mine and just gives a bit of a heave to pull me up so I can get my footing again and I can stand firm shoulder to shoulder with him. We need each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. A soldier out on his own in the middle of a field and a phalanx of soldiers over here. If the enemy's coming, which one's he going to pick? The one all by himself out in the middle of the field. He's an easy target. It's a whole lot different when we stay fastly tightened together as the people of God, working together, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, feeding and encouraging one another with the Word of God. Don't for a split second think, I can do this on my own. I need you. And you need each other. And we all need each other. Does that make sense? All right. 
Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And I want, just as we're closing, please do not run away. We have a birthday celebration, and there is a lovely cake from Lyndon Porchek that we're going to enjoy together. So would you stand with me? We'll pray, and then we'll sing together, and then we'll enjoy some birthday celebration. Loving Father, we give you thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone where we could never go and endure. He has gone to a cross. And Father, He has hung, exposed, rejected of the earth and forsaken of heaven. And He has been made sin who knew no sin. And He has absorbed and endured the full weight of Your anger and Your wrath against us. And when he shouted out, it is finished, you said it's enough. And Father, on those two great foundational truths, those two great statements of Scripture, we have assurance. We have assurance, O God, that you cannot let us go. Father, having believed in Christ and having repented of sin and having begun to live that life of obedience, we cannot be let go. For you to do so would be to spit on his death. And you would never, ever do that. Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God for the truth of the assurance that we can have through the gospel of peace. Peace has been proclaimed, O God. Peace has been given to us. Reconciliation has been given to us. Adoption has been given to us. We are accepted in Your Son. Father, what a joy. What a thrill it is, O God, to know that this is a salvation we can never lose. Father, we thank you and we worship you this morning. We lift up our hearts to you in joy because we know that he gave his all for us. Father, thank you for our Savior. Father, it's our desire to make his name great this morning. Father, thank you for a time in the word. We ask you again, O God, that you would apply these truths to our hearts that you would take the truths that we don't want to hear and drill them deeply in our hearts and minds. Father, if there is one in this room claiming to be saved but is not living their lives for you, Father, I plead with you. As a loving father disciplines his children, do what is necessary to bring them back that they might walk in obedience and in faith again in a close relationship. Father, I plead with you also that you would take those, the ones who have never ever trusted and believed in you, that they would understand that their delighting in anything but you enrages you, but that Jesus took and absorbed all of it on their behalf. Father, open their hearts and their minds to understand the gospel, to cry out for salvation. And know the joy. Father, again, those words out of the psalm. 
In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we give you thanks that nothing in this world can ever give us joy like that can. And Father, we thank you that every single day we spend throughout the course of this life in your presence, enjoying that joy is just a tiny taster of what it will be like in heaven when faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus. And we'll know joy beyond anything we can imagine. Father, thank you for the joy that we have even now. But we thank you also for the infinite joy that's yet to come. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, this morning that for those who are discouraged and downhearted, that you would lift their gaze to see Jesus. Remind them of the great truth that their salvation can never be lost. That no matter what the devil throws at them, inevitably it will fail and they will stand. Father, help us to help us, O oh God, to link arms as brothers and sisters in Christ, to stand alongside one another, pray for one another, to share the encouragement of Scripture, to minister to each other the great truths of the gospel, to build one another up in our faith. Father, to see the one that's slipping has lowered the shield a little bit. Loosen the belt of truth. Father, help us to come alongside and in love and in grace and in gentleness help them to fasten tightly the belt of truth, to put that breastplate on again, to lift the shield and lift their gaze to see Jesus and stand firm. Father, help us also to take the gospel, this great news of peace with God, to a world that knows nothing of you, Father, open their eyes to see. Father, we plead with you all these things and we give you thanks, O God, for your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you, O God, for a good morning of worship and we look forward again to this evening, Father, coming together again to consider the love of God. And Father, we ask you for these things. We give thanks in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.